Welcome to the Process Breakdown Podcast, where we talk about streamlining and scaling operations of your company, getting rid of bottlenecks, and giving your employees all the information they need to be successful at their jobs. Now, let's get started with the show. Dr. Jeremy Weiss here, host of the Process Breakdown podcast, where we talk about streamlining and scaling operations of your company, getting rid of bottlenecks, and giving your staff everything they need to be successful at their job. I always tell people, Kristen, check out past episodes and I have to come up with some new ones. I mean, Carl Cox was an amazing one. Talk about operations and systemization. The, you know, the, the go-to ones, people like the one with David Allen of Getting Things Done and Michael Gerber of the E-Myth. Uh, and there's many more. So check those out. And before I introduce today's guest, and this is a really cutting edge company doing some amazing things. I'm excited to introduce it. This episode is brought to you by Sweet Process. And if you've had team members ask you the same questions over and over, there is a better way. There is a solution. Sweet Process is actually a software that makes it drop dead easy to train and onboard new staff and save time with existing staff. And when I was talking with Owen, universities use them, banks use them, hospital software companies, but first responder government agencies use them in life or death situations. Actually, we featured them on the podcast to talk about that. And um, you can use Sweet Process to document all the repetitive tasks that eat up your precious time, your team's precious time. So you can just focus on growing and, and delivering a great service to your customers. So Sign up for a free 14-day trial. No credit card is required. Go to sweetprocess.com. Sweet like candy is S-W-E-E-T process.com. You know, it's funny because when I was looking, I'm like, oh, and like your service is super reasonable um, as far as they give up, you know, some software companies, you know, it's like one user, one per user. He's like, no, you get 25 user accounts with, with one monthly fee. It's, it's really reasonable. So check it out if you've thought about actually systemizing it in one place. And without further ado, I'm excited to introduce Kristen Ashcraft. She's the COO at Genome Medical, which is a privately held venture-backed telegenomics company. Kristen is skilled at many things, including corporate strategy, execution, transforming underperforming teams, and much more. And we'll talk about that, how she went in the past and helped fix things up, but she feels there's a better solution to just fixing things up. And she also helps to create effective organization uh, organizational culture and strives to build really strong relationships within that culture and organization. So Kristen, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Jeremy. It's great to be here with you. I want to start off with, I'm fascinated by Genome Medical and what you do. Just tell people about the company and what you do. Yeah. So we're a telegenomics company um, that provides services and technology that brings genomics to patients everywhere. Um, and I think these days, people are probably fairly familiar with telehealth and the concept of doing virtual visits. They may not be as familiar with genomics, which is the study of the 20,000 genes that make us who we are. Um, and understanding more about what your genetics entails can actually help drive forward precision medicine. So things that are going to help you have a better uh, experience in life based on what's actually in your DNA. Um, so that's what we're doing uh, every day. And um, we have a nationwide uh, telehealth practice of clinicians, and um, we bring that care to patients. So. One of the reasons, Kristen, is because you were saying there's a limited number of geneticists, mm -hmm. right? 
Yeah, yeah. So I'm definitely going to happy to jump in. Um, My team has asked me to do a little bit of a disclaimer, given that this is a natural flow uh, in a podcast conversation. But these statements coming up are my views, and I'll be expressing them today on my own behalf. They're not intended to bind uh, or be representative of genome medical in any way. But now that um, we've said that, yes, um, the genetics specialist field is Uh, very much growing, but not in the same pace as the market for genomics. And so having access to a genetic specialist who understands the specific needs of your condition or potential condition may be harder to to do, depending on where you are, where you live. Um, And so that's kind of the barrier, set of barriers that we're working to break down. Yeah. When I look at the website, it's, you know, it talks about understanding your health risk, gaining insights from your own DNA, which like you said, provides precision um, to whatever that person's experiencing and make informed decisions. Mm -hmm. What do people typically, why are they coming to genome medical? What are they experiencing in their health or their life? Yeah. It can happen through a number of ways. Um, Patients may come to us on their own because they're curious about their own genetic background and they're maybe not getting the same kind of support uh, that they think they need. Um, so we, we have patients who come to us, for example, they have a family history of cancer. Their mom maybe had cancer and aunt maybe passed away from cancer, but their primary care physician is telling them that they don't need a mammogram, and they may not need genetic testing. That is when we do get some patients coming to us proactively to assess what their risk is. Um, And that's not because primary care physicians don't want to provide it. It's sometimes they don't know um, all the information that they need. So we are also on a a mission to help inform, educate, and support our providers in delivering genetics care and being that kind of care team um, for them that they can refer to. We also work with other um, actors in the healthcare space, health systems, laboratories um, to help support patients that they may already have that they're working with and they have done a genetic test with them and they would like to have those results reviewed by a genetic counselor or a geneticist. Yeah, so I could see that. Someone has a strong family history. They may be young. They want to be proactive. Let me, and there's really no proactive tests, you know, usually with usually with, with healthcare stuff, it's like, well, now you have a problem, we should test for it. So this is a proactive way of people can kind of find out what's going on inside their own DNA. And there's a woman in the, her early thirties that came to you. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah. Yeah. So there was a, a woman who came to us in her early thirties. Um, she, her mother had passed away. Her aunt died at 41 of breast cancer and her primary care physician indicated that she didn't need to do any kind of testing until she was in her 40s. And um, the patient decided to come to us proactively and get the testing done so that she could have peace of mind about what was the future going to hold for her and her family. So those are the types of situations where we can support both sides of the spectrum, both physicians who refer patients to us, as well as patients who come directly to us. So how does it work? Do they have to send in like a blood test or... What like so, how did, what's the what's the evaluation? What's that look like? Yeah, so we do um, counseling ahead of time. If you're curious of whether you know you don't know what maybe what the right test might be, um, and you want to find out if even testing is necessary, so we do have genetic counselors on staff who will review your family history, work with you, determine what maybe the right test might be. Um, if a test is uh, recommended, we can order that because we are a telehealth medical practice. 
Um, and then that is done typically through a blood test or saliva. Um, and then the results are reported back from a laboratory and we can review those results with patients as well. So um, I myself have undergone genetic testing. And when I got my results back, I did have a conversation with a genetic counselor as well, just to make sure that I fully understood uh, what the results were. And I'm actually a bio major. So even with familiarity in the space, I found comfort in actually talking to a genetic specialist who's been trained in the field, does it day in, day out, and is passionate about making sure patients understand their results. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's a different language. And, and Kristen, you don't have to share details. I'm just curious for yourself, were there any recommendations made off of that, whether it's further testing or lifestyle in general? Not for myself. Um, for me, it, it was kind of a negative result where it was like, okay, this is, I, this is what I need to know. I can feel good about this. Yeah. Um, going the negative forward. is positive. Correct. Yeah. Um, uh, but that is exactly the kind of thing that can result is, you know, you can have follow-on care that's recommended based on what they know about the causes of a condition you might have. Yeah. I mean, this, this topic, you know, kind of freaks me out in a sense of this stuff, a lot of the stuff just is underlying. We're not seeing it. It's not showing any clinical signs or symptoms. If you look at, you know, think of heart disease, sometimes people's first sign of it could be an actual heart attack. And obviously that stuff is going on without maybe any signs or symptoms. And if you look on, and I, I encourage people to go to Genome Medical and there's a resources tab, you can see there's genetic counseling, genetic testing, there's precision medicine, there's cancer genetics, there's cardiogenetics, there's reproductive genetics, there's PD, you know, all these things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, pick your poison. I say that in a positive way, pick your, pick whatever category you're interested in and check out their website and, and go deeper in it. And, um, so, you know, I appreciate you sharing, going a little granular because it's, it's, you know, and if you have, you've thought about it, or if you have family history, go to it and maybe tell your primary care physician about it because they may not know. I mean, there's always yeah. cutting edge research and tools and, and the stuff that you're doing may not even be known. And, and you, you as a company were doing telehealth stuff before COVID too. So it wasn't like, oh, we just transitioned to this because COVID, right? right? You've been doing yeah. this previous to COVID. Correct. And, you know, again, in the conversations we started having, it's not unusual for primary care physicians to not have all of the information. There are now over 75,000 genetic tests. So to be an expert in that when you're doing so many other things as a primary care physician, that's kind of why specialists like us exist. And so we are here to kind of provide additional support for primary care physicians and other healthcare providers in the space to make sure that this helpful information is, is received by patients. Yeah, totally. So Kristen, we'll talk, we'll transition from like fixing your body, fixing things in your body with genome medical to fixing things in the company. And previously when you worked for other companies, people would call you in and be like, all right, Kristen, go at it, like fix it. Um, walk through some of the things that you had to go in and fix. And then uh, I know you have better solutions or you came in with better solutions. So it was more proactive. Yeah, um, that became a, a bit of a calling card for me to come in, assess teams that seem to be underperforming and try to help them turn it around. Um, and, you know, the way that we would assess underperformance is not meeting your key performance indicators, having poor quality um, you know, potentially having team members having to hire more than you think seems right for what they're doing. And, and maybe we're over budget in these areas. And so 
I would come in, assess the team, try to look for areas where there, there were operational deficiencies, but also kind of assess the team. And, and that's where my passion for really collaborating and pulling the ideas and, and you know, just inspiration from the team was born. Because if you come in and, and people see you as this new leader who's there to quote unquote fix things, that's not always the most happy environment to walk into. However, if they put their head down and look the other way and quickly away from you, it can be, it could be perceived negatively. And what I kind of learned to do is come in, really get to know the team, not just to be there on a fact finding mission, but really understand what are the strengths of the team? Because even an underperforming team has strengths that you can build upon and maybe they're not. Uh, being tapped into in a certain uh, way. And so what I have done is gotten to know the team, identified who those leaders are, and collaborated with them. Hey, you see this issue too. What are your ideas for fixing this? How do you see this as being something that we can tackle together? What do you need? What have you been asking for that you haven't been getting? Um, And that usually brings about uh, so many ideas, many of which end up being part of the strategy to fix it. And um, what I have done a a few times over is when you have those open conversations and you ultimately move into action to address whatever the issue is, the team comes back to you with just their faces are lit up because they were a part of the solution and they can actually see it work. Um, And that is the kind of the best gift is coming in and fixing something, but doing it alongside your team members. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you know, that, that collaborative approach, because oftentimes probably it's almost natural to go in and just try and fix it yourself. And when you have that collaborative nature, then people take ownership over it. And if it doesn't work, they probably take ownership over it not working and trying to fix it. Yeah. Uh, I've definitely found that to be the case, especially it's especially important when a change requires a lot of effort. So in a lot of these cases in my past, it required hours of training cross-training, new roles and responsibilities, a lot of that change can be very disruptive. Um, but if you're doing it alongside of your team and they can feel where you're trying to go and they're in it with you and they've even built some of the, the steps, when it comes to fruition, they're okay putting in the effort and the investment because they can understand why. You know, so you, the scenario is there's underperforming team like Kristen, all right, work your magic. And you go in and you assess the team first. What are some of the things that you do to assess the team where where the situation's at? Mm -hmm. Um, I try to meet with people across all levels. So I want to hear what the leaders have to say, but then I also want to hear what every single member of the team, no matter what their role is, has to say. So if it's a large team, a representative from each function, if it's a smaller team, I'll talk to everybody. even today, I and I've consistently maintained this, no matter what my structure is, if I have a set of direct reports, I always do skip level meetings with their direct reports because I want to understand what's going on in the team. So in an assessment p- period, meeting with all of them, meeting with cross-functional partners to really understand what's their perspective of the team, what do they see as opportunities, and try to bring that 360 view to how the team is operating um, and what what kind of needs might be there, the, that gap analysis, essentially. And then, so once you assess the team, do you come up with a level of here's where I see are the top two or three gaps or th- what, what do you, what's the next stage on what you're 
you're looking to probably present since it's collaborative to, to the team? Yeah. So I, I like to pull the teams together. Learned over time to be transparent and upfront about this. I generally tell them, guys, I have three areas that I think are probably the pieces that are driving our issues most. I'm not going to tell you what they are right now. I want then they to hate have you. A, yeah. No, <laughs> and then I open it up and I, we start the dialogue. And generally what that does is it helps them know that I'm not coming in with no answers. I have some, but I'm also not pressing my ideas on the team. Um, you and don't want to influence them. Correct. And so I let them run for a while and then if we don't touch on the three that I maybe had in mind, I'll, I'll throw it in there once we've had some time to discuss and say, hey, have you, have you thought about this, you know, and, and how do you react to it? And then I'll get their honest reactions. And sometimes it's a fit and sometimes they're like, actually, no, that's not really an issue. Here's why. And so it, again, creates that facilitation and collaboration. Got it. So you'll, you'll assess it so you can come up with kind of a hypothesis on what, here's the three things, but you really want to hear when then you bring everyone together after you've assessed it, you don't want to do that in the beginning because you kind of want to have kind of a, to see what they come up with and have in your mind, what may be a structured solution. And then you bring it up and it will naturally come up within that. And when people touch on it, then you, it will confirm your hypothesis. Almost. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you say confirm my hypothesis because I, I was actually a bio major in college. And you know, when you're doing research, you do put a hypothesis out there. You try to vet whether that is right or not over the course of time. And, and I think that is essentially what happens when I'm, yeah. when I'm diagnosing these situations. Yeah. yeah, that's maybe it comes because my, I was also a biochemistry <laughs> major. So, um, so then you collaborate, everyone's in the room and you come to these three things or two things, whatever, maybe two of them are what you thought it was. And maybe there was a separate one that became the real issue. Then what do you do next? You identified it. Then what comes next? Yeah. So, so kind of key there is identifying who is going to be the one who carries the strategy forward, who creates the framework, who's essentially project managing it, even if that's not their role day to day in the company. Um, it's actually one of my favorite things to do to not only assess what someone's role is in the company today, but what other areas of interest and strength they may have and using those things to help drive this kind of organizational change or operational improvement. And so you would identify a project manager. You might identify someone who wants to dig into a specific system and assessing and vetting whether that's the right fit for that need. Then you have the person who's like, hey, I, once you guys are set on what we want to do, I want to train the team on how to do that. Okay, fantastic. Um, and I have found over time that that's really effective in driving change because as leaders, we can't do it all ourselves. We have to delegate. And so if you're going to delegate effectively, you want to delegate tasks and projects to people, ideally, who want to do this and who get joy out of doing that piece of the work, as opposed to adding something to somebody's plate when it's already pretty full and having them cringe. Right. Um, and so I try to match that up too along the way so that you have the people who are passionate about uh, the different steps in the process doing them because they're going to be your best champions. Yeah. And I love to hear about. So once you come to that and it's trained, how do you reassess whether it's someone reporting on a KPI or something? I'm curious of how you go back and, and check the system. But 
So I find you, you assess the team, you find the gaps and you do, then you collaborate about those things and then you create accountability. So someone's accountable for it. And then you have those people help train the team. And then what happens as far as how do you, okay, let's check the system to see if this works. Yeah, no, great question. Um, One of the things that you want to do kind of at that point where you're about to kick off the change is set your baseline, right? So what is the existing set of metrics? How, what's the performance today? And then you want to measure that over the course of time as you've rolled out your, your organizational change. And you can really assess um, how your new process structure system is helping improve those baseline uh, metrics. And that's the best way to, to gain momentum for maybe the next change, right? Because your team can see hey, the effort we went through, it actually made sense and it worked out. Now, the other side is maybe you don't improve it. Maybe the results actually get worse, but sort of setting expectations that we'll come back to this. We'll continue to revise. We'll make sure that we can we can look at maybe option two. Maybe we started with the first thing that didn't work the way we thought it would. Now we can move on to option two. So it's keeping the team along for the ride, assessing it along the way so that they can see those results too and get behind whatever the next step is. Yeah, no, thanks for laying that out. And so that's with fixing things. And then we were talking before we hit record on, well, it's actually better to do building than fixing. So what do you what did you mean by that? I, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say better, but it's another side of operations, right? right. So are you, are you coming into an organization that is well-established and maybe has room for improvement, efficiency improvement, continuous improvement on quality, whatever it might be? Or are you coming into an organization where there's some things established, but you, there's an opportunity to build as well? And I think that it's something that operations leaders kind of need to assess what their passion area is. And for me personally, you know, what I was looking for in my career when I came to Genome Medical was that opportunity to build. Um, I, I enjoy fixing. It's really fulfilling to see that you can improve with the help of a team. It's also really fun to say, oh, wow, we don't have this established yet. So we could maybe take that manual process and automate it. And, and it's exciting to start that off in a fresh, I guess, and see kind of where it can go from there. and. A lot of times we go and we get ideas um, from conferences, from peers, and you just are, you really want to implement them. And so having the chance to do that um, in a situation where it's maybe the first time, as opposed to uh, maybe a subsequent time, a fifth time, a sixth time, it's fun. It's fun to see that side of, of the operational process. Yeah, I can see that, you know, um, you know, one thing is just creating efficiencies with what's already there. And then the second is, building, you know, building other things that are going to improve the company. Can right. you give an example? It doesn't have to be from, from Juno Medical or, in the, or it could be from the past company of uh, a process or system that you're like, you came in, you're like, let's build this. Maybe like you said, it was something that was automated that wasn't automated. What would be an example so people can kind of wrap their heads around what, what building something could look like? Sure. Um, I think something that we kind of came about, this is more on building a community feeling in a company that can lead to this kind of operational efficiency and effectiveness. Um, I've had the opportunity to build mentorship programs um, in the companies that I have worked with and uh, build them from scratch. So 
what does it mean to offer up opportunities for people at various stages in their career to get guidance and mentorship from those who may be ahead of them on the career path? Um, obviously, mentors also get something out of those arrangements from learning from their mentees. Um, but that opportunity to pull together cross-functional team members who care about this as a concept, but want to make it real um, is something that I have done before and um, have gotten a ton of fulfillment out of. And it's it's very exciting when you see something start from an idea, build up into a process, get launched, have participants working within that program, and then seek, seek feedback along the way on how you can improve it. And then you see the next class and the next class. And you see what happens when people are motivated and feel supported in their careers, the types of ideas, the types of energy they bring to their roles and their functions in the company. It really is, it comes full circle. Yeah, I love that. I, I want to dig deeper into that mentorship program. And it kind of goes into the discussion, which I had in my mind that we we're going to talk about, which is the importance of creating an open, transparent, and positive culture. Yeah. Is that kind of this, the un, you know, the basis for the mentorship is that, or is there something else you, you had in mind when I, when I say that? No, I mean, there's so many aspects um, that I feel are important to creating a positive group culture and to, to ensuring that people feel like they understand their role in the company, in the team and why they matter. Um, mentorship is one of those examples that shows them that they matter if a company is willing to invest in that. Um, the other is to really create clear goals and show them how their role or function aligns back to those clear goals for the company and in showing them that they have a part in achieving the mission. I mean, at Genome Medical, we're trying to bring genomics to patients everywhere. How does every person in the company contribute to that in their day to day? It's easy to lose sight of that sometimes. And as leaders, I think that's really important to kind of bring that focus back. Um, and the other piece of it, too, is to make sure that people know that they can be themselves, that they belong, that they can bring their whole experience to work, and that they're not just work robots, as I like to say. Um, and I try to do that by, I mentioned skip levels earlier, mentorship, but just being available. And like team members today, they will send me a message on Slack and they'll apologize for interrupting me. And I always write back and say, I'm always here for you because if they don't feel that I am, how will they give me honest feedback when something is broken or when a new thing we've put in place that I'm super excited about isn't working well for them? I need them to be honest for us to operate effectively and to scale effectively. Yeah, I love that. Um, linking the job, what the job does to how it's accomplishing the goals of the company. I remember I was talking to one person who had a large disaster restoration company and he said, you know, as the trucks would come in, the uh, custodial staff would have to clean the nails and the other stuff, the debris off. And they said, you know, linked it back. You have literally, the, he would say, you have the most important job because if a nail gets in the tire, we can't get the trucks out. We can't service our, you know, all that. So everyone's job is links back to the goal and the importance of the, the end result. Um, so <clears throat> I love to hear from the mentorship program. Mm -hmm. What have you found since you've, you've set, set these up? What has not worked that people are like, you know, don't try this. I have done this many times and, and this did not work. And what did you find worked really well as a, as a general practice that people are like, yeah, that sounds great, Kristen. I, I should have a mentorship program. 
Yeah, I, I think one of the things that is is interesting is assessing how formal the mentorship program needs to be for your particular business or team. Um, sometimes really formal structures of they will be 30 minutes, they will be this way is very helpful depending on who the mentors are as well. Um, others, it's better to be a bit more casual. What I have found though is it's some structure is good. So making sure that people have some guide rail, a guardrail so that they know what's inbounds, what's out of bounds, how do I utilize this person's time effectively? Um, and what can I expect from this? Uh, I think that helps a lot. One thing that I think has been a fear that some people do embark on mentorship programs with is what if it's not a fit? What if I select this mentor-mentee relationship, I get into my first meeting and I just don't feel a connection and the advice they're giving me, I don't, I don't agree with. What do I do? This is maybe a senior person in my organization if I'm the mentee or I'm the senior person and I'm like, hey, this doesn't feel like a good use of my time. What do I do? And I think a key there that I've always tried to implement in the programs that I've created is you can let the program organizers know it's not a fit. It's okay. No one will be offended. We will ensure that it's a, you know, we can exit. Everybody will be on good terms and we'll just find a better fit. That way, you know that the relationship is going to be strong and is going to actually benefit, hopefully, both parties. Um, I think the thing that also has worked very well, which I, I like kind of relying on, is once you have the first class who knows that they're the first class, knows that they're going to probably have to give more feedback and input than maybe subsequent classes, if they can come back for that next class and talk about the experience, it's amazing, right? Because no one can replace the testimonial from someone who maybe was a little bit concerned going in, had all the same feelings that others do. But once they've gone through a mentorship program, they see the benefits and they can speak to what it meant to them. Um, and, you know, for me personally, a previous program I set up now at, you know, medical, one of my direct reports is a prior mentee of mine. So those relationships, if they work well, they can be really helpful and productive uh, in the future. And I've had mentees that are outside of the organization reach out to me months, years after the program has ended, after we're in different organizations, uh, to still connect and, and talk because we built a relationship that we both felt was meaningful and, and I'm happy to contribute to their continued growth in that way. So I think- Is there a recommended frequency and length? Like, oh, we should do once a week in 30 minutes. What is, what is kind of a general rule? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Generally, we go monthly. So 30 to 45 minutes a month. Um, generally looking at a program length of six months because schedules happen, things happen, but you want to have some regularity and you want to have some repetition of exposure. So you get to know the people's style. It also gives the opportunity for a mentee and mentor to tackle a specific thing and then talk about what happened after. Hey, did you have that conversation? Did you make that suggestion? Did you create that presentation you were working on? How did it go? If you don't have longevity of the relationship built into the program, it's kind of hard to have those longer term goals play themselves out. Do you recommend it be an opt-in situation or is it mandatory? I definitely opt-in. Um, these things require commitment from both participants that they are, are ready to actually be there. If somebody is required to be there, you may not get their full honesty, their full input, and they're not going to get the full value out of it. So I would definitely suggest opt-in. And then 
is there a, for structuring the call? So you have like 30 to 45 minutes. What do you do? What, or whether it's in person or on a call? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really good question. I've actually seen it uh, in different ways, both I, when I was a mentee, as well as when I've been a mentor. <clears throat> Personally, I prefer a very clear agenda. And I recommend that that agenda be sent ahead of time, typically with only maybe three key questions that a mentee might want to ask a mentor. Um, and maybe a reminder, hey, last time we talked about X, I want to give you an update on that. Um, I think having line of sight is really good. I, I would say for me personally, as a mentor, it's super helpful because it gives me time to reflect. Hey, I'm really concerned about what my next step is in my career. I'm, I'm really not feeling like our team is operating as efficiently as we could. I have some ideas. Then I can actually think about it in advance too and come to the meeting prepared, not just react real time to, oh, you're asking me this question. If I, I could probably have given you a better set of answers if I had you know five minutes to think about it ahead of time. Um, and you know, I think kind of making sure that everybody's aware that it's happening. Nobody's surprised that you're jumping on a, a mentorship call, um, that there's that dedicated space and nobody's multitasking during it, I think is really useful. I think the other piece that, that I, I like to kind of set up with people ahead of time, especially if it's a mentorship program within the organization that both parties work in, um, establish what the expectation is between the mentor and the mentee if something comes up that the mentor really thinks that person's manager or team should mm. be involved in. Who's going to tell that person? Is it going to be the mentor or is it going to be the mentee? And so I always try to bring that up in the middle of conversations like, ooh, this sounds like one that you should really talk to your manager about. Do you want to talk to them about it or do you want me to? Because one of us is going to. <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. It's, it's almost like if you think of a, a therapist treating a child, you know, and uh, I mean, I'm not comparing the two, but you need kind of authorization. Like it needs to happen. Maybe it's something important the parent needs to know. So the, you know, the, the teenager could tell the parent or, but it's important enough that someone needs to tell the parent uh, what's going on. So, Absolutely. yeah. So I like that. So a couple of key questions and then updates as an agenda and working through those. Um, Chris, I just want to thank you. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. Thank you for walking through your methodology of this you know, creating more of a collaborative, open environment. I uh, basically encourage anyone to check out more episodes of the podcast. Check out genomemedical.com. And thanks, everyone. Thanks, right, Kristen. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Process Breakdown Podcast. Before you go, quick question. Do you want a tool that makes it easy to document processes, procedures, and or policies for your company so that your employees have all the information they need to be successful at their job? If yes, sign up for a free 14-day trial of Sweet Process. No credit card is required to sign up. Go to sweetprocess.com, sweet like candy, and process like process.com. Go now to sweetprocess.com and sign up for your risk-free 14-day trial. Hi, this is Owen, the CEO and co-founder here at Sweet Process. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast interview, uh, actually, you know what I want you to do? Go ahead and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That way we get more people aware of you know, the good stuff that you get here on this podcast. Again, go on to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Looking forward to reading your review. Have a good day. Mm -hmm.